Welcome to Women on the Verge of a Financial Breakthrough, the podcast where we're going to figure out finance one dumb question at a time. I'm Caitlin Meredith. I'm a mediator and a coach based in the Bay Area. And I'm Sarah Glacus. I'm an investor, advisor, and founder of Black Barn Financial and the Austin Women's Investing Group, which can be found on Meetup. She's the expert and I'm the dummy. And when I met Sarah, my idea of a financial plan for my future was deciding whether I could afford the fancy cheese at the supermarket that week. Then I took her investing for beginners class and I started to think about the cheese that I could buy in my 70s. Now, this podcast is going to share with you the secrets I learned from this mysterious investing world and how to plan for the fancy cheeses of your future. So, are you ready for some more dumb questions? Yes, I'm ready. What is the difference between savings and investments? When someone says you should have this much in savings, I always think they mean in a savings account. And sometimes I feel like people are actually saying like you're saving money for retirement, which would mean it would be in investments, not in a savings account. Yeah, that's a good question. I think context probably matters. People do use those terms interchangeably. And I think I'm probably guilty of this as well. When I'm thinking about investing, that is the process of turning the money you've saved, right? You earn some money, you pay for some stuff, and then there's some money left over, right? That is your savings. And I think of that as cash. And you turn that into investments. You use your savings to buy investments. So the savings piece is important because you need to know at the end of every month or the end of every year how much you can save. And then it's up to you as the investor to figure out where you put the savings. Do you put it into a savings account or a checking account, which is cash? Or do you turn it into a mutual fund with stocks in it or bonds or something like that and you turn it into what I think most people would think of as an investment or as investment accounts. Okay, so it's the money you are earning but not spending. Correct. In that category. And I'm assuming in a financial plan, some of that should go into a savings account. So it's available to you, your emergency fund, whatever, fix the car. The other part of that unspent salary needs to go in investments which is also called retirement savings. Yes. I mean, I think, again, that's a point. Like if someone's talking about this, you would want them to clarify because not all investing is for retirement. I mean, that's kind of the, the easiest thing to think about. I earn money. I save some money. Some of that saved money goes into a savings account for an emergency. Some goes into a retirement account for retirement, and it's called a retirement account. But there's lots of people who invest outside of retirement accounts. So I think limiting it to retirement accounts is a little bit, the vocabulary is a little bit limiting. I try to use the phrase investment accounts and investment accounts encompasses both long-term retirement accounts and shorter term, maybe college savings accounts. 
or just some brokerage account that you have because you don't know what you're going to use the money for yet, but you still want to be investing it, you know, putting it at risk with the expectation for a higher rate of return than you would get in a real legitimate savings account. But those all kind of fall under the realm of investment accounts. So when I first started your class, Investing for Beginners, those many years ago, I didn't think I was investing because I didn't know what investing was. And then through your class realized (laughs) that because I had a 401k from a very old job, I already was investing. That happens all the time. The other thing I hear that's in a similar category is people will say to me, well, I don't invest in stocks. But then they'll show me their 401k that has 60% in a stock mutual fund. And I'm like, these are stocks. You're investing in those stocks through your 401k. What they're trying to tell me is I don't buy individual stocks. Okay. They're differentiating between buying shares of individual stocks and buying shares of a mutual fund that invests in stocks. And so I think people, you know, they put their money in all sorts of different categories according to like the mind map that's in their brain. And that makes it difficult for us to talk to each other about it, right? Because my mind map is different from your mind map. 100%. And I feel like this all comes back to not having a shared vocabulary. You're either in the club or you're out of it is what it feels like. And if you're out of it, you've had to kind of cobble together your own understandings based on just like whatever random newspaper article you've read. But mainly I avoided all that stuff. But Yeah. So you don't know even what you have or what you're already doing. And that's that's very confusing, too. Right. Because it's also like Russian dolls. You know, you have your 401k and inside your 401k, you have mutual funds and those mutual funds invest in stocks. And so you can look inside the mutual fund and see what stocks the mutual fund invests in. So you have to keep or you can keep, you know, opening the portfolio and opening the accounts and opening them into smaller and smaller pieces. And how those all fit together is very confusing for people who aren't used to the vocabulary and aren't used to taking a deeper dive into what they have. Well, it's really comforting to know that I'm not the only person out there that really did not get. And I just want, I think there's something about the people that we see in movies and TV that have investment accounts that can say the word brokerage or my broker. (laughs) Those are men in polo shirts, you know, that make a lot of money. And so it's not a sort of universal concept that we, I would also be doing something that is exact same as they are. Right. I mean, and we should all be having more and more conversations in whatever our understanding of the language is so that you can get more used to the vocabulary and more used to the language and you can become more fluent. Most people will never become fluent. So there will always be that, you know, finance as a second language, something that comes up where it's like, oh, she she said this, but she meant that. Now I understand what she's trying to tell me. Like that is a huge barrier in finance. Like you don't even try to ask the questions like you are asking them right now and I think I don't know like people like me like people who are kind of do this professionally we need to be more accommodating we need to be more open to taking the time to understand what people are trying to tell us 
because it's, I don't know, it's really important. It's also good for us to hear how other people think of finance, right? Well, I think your language analogy is right on. Like when you learn enough to ask someone directions and then they turn around and tell you those directions in their language and you're like, oh shit, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I know how to put together my one question. And so that shuts you up. You sort of, you know, your, your fingers get burned on that first one and you can't even ask a follow-up because you have that overwhelming experience of asking the question, getting an answer, and actually feeling even more confused. So you're right. And that's one thing that has been so great about the Austin Women's Investing Group and being asked to ask the dumb questions. Because I think I would have never even articulated the assumptions I was making. Yes. Okay. So let's talk about compounding interest. So I'm going to give you my understanding. This is like a game of telephone. You taught me what compounding interest is. Now I'm going to tell it back to you. I'm so excited. Okay. My take-home message from understanding compounding interest is the longer you're in the stock market, the more money you make, which seems self-evident. But when I say more money, it's like orders of magnitude more the longer you're in it. So it's not the same as saying the longer you work at your job, the more money you make because you'll get a promotion every once in a while. And with seniority, you'll get bonuses, whatever. I'm talking if you start at the beginning of your working life, the riches you can amass by your retirement are beyond what most of us would have imagined. And so that means that the money, whatever money you put in earlier will always turn into much more money than if you start putting in a lot money later in your life. I don't know. I think that's pretty good. It's so hard to do it without the math example. So compounding interest is using your lifetime to increase your wealth that's stronger than the amount of money you actually put in it. So your years are worth more than your dollars, essentially. So starting out as early as you can means you'll be richer at the end than even if you can put in twice that amount later in your life. Yes. And so to drill down on that, I'll just add on to that the way that I think about compounding, using that as a jumping off point. Now, compounding is the idea that the money you earn earns its own money in the future. Okay. And so there's all these mathematical formulas that we use to describe that exponential growth. But another way to think about it where you don't have to think about exponential growth necessarily, something that's a little bit more intuitive to me is thinking about compounding as how many times can you double your money? So going back to what you said about age and youth, if you're starting at 25 and you're ending at 65, you have 40 years of compounding. Mm -hmm. If we expect an investment, let's say a stock, to double every 10 years, you have four rounds of doubling. Okay. So one dollar invested turns into two, turns into four, 
turns into eight. Right. If you start later and you only have 20 years of compounding, you go through that doubling cycle only twice. Okay. $1 turns into $2, turns into $3. Okay. I think I missed a compounding cycle for the younger person. But it ends up being like, how many times can I double my money before I need to start working that whole thing in reverse and start using this wealth that I've accumulated to live off of and have a secure end of life, whatever the timing on that looks like. There's another part of it, I feel like that is not intuitive, but that's super important, which is you can't compensate for the time you lost almost with any amount of money. I mean, if you're super wealthy, it doesn't really matter. But you can't compensate for those 20 missed years by just saying, well, I'll start by investing more money now because of missing those doubling cycles. It's crazy because, you know, when I was young, I didn't have money, but I had time. And that would have actually made me, (laughs) the time was the, the key there, not the money. And later in life, you need to have a lot of the money to compensate for the lack of time to make it even. Absolutely. And that's what traps people who don't start until late, whatever that is relative to, you know, how long you have left to go. Starting later means just because of the way the math works, if you start later and you're trying to get to the same end point, you have to save way more money, which means you need to earn more money and or spend less money in order to have that much larger amount to save and put away. Someone has, you know, worked their whole life, you know, they put all their kids through college, and then they turn 50 and they come in and they say, okay, now I'm ready to start saving for retirement. Yeah. The amount of money you need to save from age 50 to age 65 can be huge. You're trying to, you know, let's say you're trying to get to a million dollars. That savings amount can be such a large number that people get discouraged and they just give up. And that's when people say like, okay, I'm going to have to work longer than expected. Right. Or I'm going to have to invest in the types of things that I wouldn't normally invest in because I need a higher rate of return in order to make this math work. Can we do our examples? Sure. Okay. I'm going to give you three examples of women at different stages of their life. And we'll go through the math so we can demonstrate this. Okay, our first young woman is Lucy. She's 25 years old. She just graduated college and she's starting her first job. Now she's barely making more than her living expenses. Let's say she says, okay, I can put $25 a month, which would be like 300 a year. I can put that in my retirement account. And she works until 65. Let's say nothing else changes. She just does that. She should put more in as she goes along. But just for the purpose of this example, she does $300 a year from age 25 to 65 when she retires. How much will she have in that account when she retires at 65? So we would use a financial calculator or an Excel spreadsheet or a Google future value calculator to do these examples. But in this example, let's just assume she gets an 8% rate of return. So she's investing pretty aggressively. She's in the stock market and it's growing at an average of 8% per year. Then at age 65, just that $300 per year will turn into 77000 $716. 
Will you do math for me? Just figure out what's $300 times 40? So what was the actual amount she put into it? Yeah, that's an awesome question. $12,000. She put in 12000 over 40 years, and what she's getting out on the other end is 78000 Correct. Yes. Okay. So that's amazing. But in theory, she would be putting in more. So she started out at 25 per month. But then she starts making more money, and so that number should go up. So this is for the purpose of example. Now let's take Keisha, who is 40 years old, and she's been freelance in her career. And so she just never felt like she had enough money to do a retirement account. She never had to do one for a job. But at 40, she's had her first kid, and she feels like, okay, I kind of freaked out. Like now people I know are talking about retirement. So she says, I can afford now $50 a month. So that is $600 a year. So twice what Lucy was putting in, who's 15 years younger. How much will Keisha have when she retires at 65? Okay, so Keisha has 25 years of compounding in front of her. Let's also assume an 8% annual rate of return. So when she starts that plan in motion, if she contributes $600 a year for 25 years and gets an average 8% rate of return, she will end up with $43,863. So half as much. And how much did she put in of her cash? So 600 times 25? 15,000. She put in 15,000 and gets 43,000 out. Yes. Whereas Lucy put in 12,000 and got almost 80,000 out. Yes. Now let's talk to our 60 year old woman, Camila, who's divorcing. And both she and her husband were shift workers, or he got his retirement account. She raised the kids. He took the retirement account. She got a, not a great, she got the house instead of the retirement account. She decides she's going to start putting $100 a month in. What would she get? She only has five years for that theoretical retirement point at 65. But she's putting in twice what Keisha did and four times what Lucy did. So over those five years, again, assuming an 8% rate of return, and now over five years, that would be reasonable, but not, you would need good luck. But assuming the 8% rate of return, five years of compounding, putting in $1,200 per year for five years, she would end up with $7,040. Oh my God, that's terrifying. (laughs) I know, it's so hard. It is really hard. And it's the kind of thing that, of course, we don't want to talk about to scare people, you know, to encourage people Mm -hmm. to say, I love it when you always say people are always asking you, like, should I do this system or that system to start investing? And you say, whatever system you will do that starts today, do it. Because the time factor is what you can't, you can figure out exactly your ratios and how you all do that later but you can't do anything to compensate for the time that you're losing by not being in the market. Right. Okay. Anything else you want to say about compounding interest? I think the concepts of compounding are the most important thing for pretty much anyone to learn, but certainly women. Like you don't have to know the math. You don't have to memorize the formulas. You don't have to take finance 101, but you do need to have an appreciation for the power of compounding because that is the underpinning of everything anyone is talking about when they're talking about investing. 
What I love when you talk about compounding, I love it when you talk to me about <laughs> compounding, Sarah. <laughs> Whisper sweet compounding in my ear. Is that I feel an enormous loss for that money that I, that cash money I put from tips in a shoebox to spend on, you know, whatever when I was 20 that I could have very easily put in this account that I didn't. But I have a daughter. And so she will have no choice but to start as early as possible to put that bare minimum in. And so I'll get to see over her lifetime, you know, in my lifetime, how that works for her. And I think that's just this other part is not just for ourselves, but what we can pass on to younger women and people that we know who don't think of themselves as any of this applying to them is it does. And we can be the ones that intervene and say, yep, this is how you open this account. $15 a year or not a year, let's hope for a month, whatever, will make a huge difference in their lifetime. So even for those of us that feel it's a, we caught on a little late, <laughs> there's pride in being able to pass it on to the younger generation. Yes, and that makes those calculations on your calculator really exciting and interesting and illuminating is, oh my gosh, what if you start thinking intergenerationally? So not a requirement. You can just run it over your own expected lifetime. But when you start thinking like, okay, like what could the power of this be over generations and generations? I mean, spoiler alert, that's what rich people do, right? You don't think about just your generation. You think about the following generation and you start doing intergenerational planning and run these calculations out for decades and decades and decades. That's how vast family fortunes are made because the machine is set up to take advantage of compounding over decades. And once it gets going... It's a flywheel, and it's really hard to stop. Warren Buffett, you know, he started this flywheel at age 14, and now he's 90. I mean, I would assume that he's still compounding money on top of such vast sums that he can't give it away fast enough, right? So that's why you hear about people that are heirs to a family fortune for a company that doesn't even exist anymore or that like made a big thing in the 40s but isn't even available anymore it's because of this compounding yeah if the generations stick with it and that money is just making more money even though no new money might be put in the system right they don't have to be investing it in the original business they're probably investing it in the other businesses that are available to invest in in the world but the concept is the same how fast do we expect this money to double over a period of 10 years? And it's just how you're generating a high rate of return on top of a high base amount. And it just, I mean, that's what compounding is. And it's also how it can get out of control, right? But you can start yeah. using at least that concept, right, for yourself in some capacity. Yeah. But also when you think about the rich get richer and the poor get poorer, this is also just like, Whoever's plugged into that versus who isn't. Yes. And there's no possibility of compensating for not being in it. No. If you have that machine that is making you this vast quantity of money. And I think the other thing that surprises me about it is that it's relatively or can be passive. You know, we're talking about Lucy investing $25 a month. 
she's just putting it in a retirement account that has a mixture of stocks and bonds and she's just leaving it there. It's not like she's actively making all of these like really wise money decisions all the time and has to really understand the whole thing. All she's literally doing is setting up an auto transfer and that will build her the money. I think for me, I think of those super wealthy is that that's kind of their job Mm -hmm. is to be thinking about and strategizing all the time. So it's like a lifestyle decision for me. The secret is that it can be pretty passive if you set up a system. Right. I mean, that's what your 401k is. It's that system. So you have to make two choices. You have to make the choice to not spend the money. And you have to make the choice to log into your account and choose what you are investing in. And you basically can choose high risk, high return, or low risk, low return. And if you are able to get closer and closer to the high risk, high return side where you have a chance to get an 8 or 9 or 10% average annual rate of return, if you can get yourself to that side of the spectrum, that's how this calculation works. If you aren't, if you can save the money, but it sits in your savings account or it sits in a money market account in your 401k and you're earning 1% per year, it's basically going to take you 70 years to double your money. So you better save a lot of money or you're not going to have enough. It's so counterintuitive to like what a good person does with savings and how smart you are with money. It really is. At least for me. And it's counter to most of the advice that you hear, right? Or the money lessons that you probably learned as a child or learned as an adult, which is, you know, you do the right thing. You don't have any debt. You save money and you don't take too much risk because you don't want to get burned. But there's more to the story, right? I think that's what this podcast is for, is exploring the other parts of the story where maybe those words aren't as wise as we were led to believe. Yes, and we're going to unpack a lot of those later. So there are... Hi, Juju. Can you close the door so I can just finish this, please? Hey. Okay. I'll be out in five minutes. Can you close the door? I'm almost done. Hey, ladies. That's little Judy Glacus, future woman on the verge of a financial breakthrough, just as soon as she finds her juice box. Sarah, can you tell me one step a woman on the verge of a financial breakthrough could take today to take a good look and start the kind of future financial planning maybe she's never done before or has done before but got out of it or just needs a couple reminders to keep that sort of financial health future focus. So I think that one really easy thing that every woman can do is once a year go to annualcreditreport.com and double check to make sure this is the one that's sponsored by the U.S. government. And you can get a free credit report from all three national credit reporting agencies. So that's Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. These are the credit reporting agencies that keep, you know, they calculate your credit scores. They keep your credit report. And here's why. So yes, you want to make sure that someone isn't stealing your identity and taking out debt or taking out credit cards in your name. So you do want to prevent identity theft and fraud. That is very good. But... For women on the verge, you want to make sure that your credit score is in the best condition possible because you're going to use that credit score in order to get 
healthy types of debt or to refinance the unhealthy debt that you have. And all of that depends on your credit score. Well, I should say not all of it. A lot of it depends on your credit score and a lot of it depends on your income. But having a healthy credit score and knowing generally what your score is and whether it's you know mediocre or good or excellent will allow you to start using debt in a really healthy way. And so this is just an easy thing to do to mark your calendar once a year. Go and check your credit report. Make sure that things are looking good. You're paying all of your bills on time and keeping track of that because your credit score isn't there as like a trophy that you put in a trophy case and you're always trying to make your credit score look better and better and better. You are eventually going to use this credit score in order to improve your finances. So just make sure it's in good shape because we're going to come back and we're going to talk about in future episodes how to use your credit score in order to make good financial decisions. Okay, but tell me this. I know people are worried. I've never been worried because I don't do it. I will today. If your credit gets checked too much, that it looks bad on it? So this is checking your credit report. If you apply for credit over and over again, it will affect your credit score. But this is checking your credit report. You're not asking for a new credit card. You're not asking for a loan. You're not inquiring about anything. You are just checking the information that these three companies have on file about you. So it will not affect your credit report or your credit score to check. To check it. Okay. Because once you know why it's bad, what is showing up on your credit report, you can start fixing those things. Why should they have to look at it if they just already know it's going to be bad? Because when you look at what is showing up on your credit report, you can start fixing it. So if you are behind on your payments, that will show up on your credit report. All you have to do is start making your payments on time and those little red boxes will turn to green boxes. And so we're trying to turn that from not paying on time to paying on time for some length of time. And a lot of people think that they need to make all of their payments on time for seven years or five years or three years to make a difference. I mean, a lot of what I've heard is it's 12 months. 12 months of making your payments on time in order to have a significant bump to your credit score. Okay. That's seeing, am I making the payments? Do I have too high of a balance on one or two of my credit cards? If you reduce the balance on your cards and you can start taking classes or, you know, looking at YouTube videos or something on how to improve your credit score, there's this whole game to improving your credit score. Like, okay, maybe you don't want to pay off the entire balance on one card. You want to pay it down to 30% and then work on the other card. Okay. But once you know what you're starting with, then you can start making these changes in order to improve your financial picture. And I think that your credit score is the highest impact way to do that. Once you have a good credit score, you can borrow money cheaper. You can think about buying a house if you don't own one. You can think about refinancing your student loans at lower rates. You can think about refinancing your car at a lower rate. All of these like magical things start happening when you're able to borrow money for cheaper. And you will be able to borrow money for cheaper with a better credit score. And the first step is knowing what it is. It reminds me, I used to be a bike and hiking tour guide in Europe. And one of my co-guides and friends, Catherine, 
always said, information is ammunition. We I love that. We to know the good, bad, and ugly to plan these trips and carry them out. And it reminds me of that, that information, even if it's bad, is ammunition because you know what the next steps are, no matter what the result is. And also, knowing, A, it might not be as bad as you think it is. And if it is as bad or worse, you have a place to improve upon. Like you have a benchmark. This is where I was when I started this journey. And knowing it maybe is a bigger step for some people than others, and it really counts then. Sarah, I feel like a bunch of people are going to be worried about figuring out their own time value of money calculation. What are we going to do? Don't worry. We're going to find some way to walk people through the calculations so that they can do them on their own or alongside us, and so they can feel really comfortable with how to think about time value of money and how to do the calculations for themselves. Because that's really how you get to the number of both how much money do I need to retire and how do I get there from here, right? Yes, the calculations will give you the information that you need to answer almost all of the financial questions that you probably have. Oh my God. And it's I a know. secret formula we're going to unpack. It's a secret formula. I'm going to tell you <laughs> how to unlock the mysteries Stay of investing. Tuned. Can't wait. Okay. See you next time. Hey. Do you have any dumb questions about finance or investing? Send them to us at our website, womenontheverge.com. Hey, so many thank yous to Kelly West, a woman on the verge in her own right, who took the amazing photos for our album art and website, helped with our website design, music, audio editing, cheerleading, mental health, everything. Emily Kleinsorgi, our stylist that did our hair and makeup for our photos from Lucy Skyrocket. Lauren Gross and Taylor Gross, who helped us with our graphic design. And our music is by Bad Bad Hats in Devmo. This episode was edited by Kim Shelton and Kelly West. If your partner is making you ask for money, giving you an allowance, taking your money, or not letting you know about or have access to family income, this could be economic abuse. Learn more at thehotline.org or call one 800 799 safe. So Sarah, because you're a financial professional, we have to read a disclaimer for this podcast. I would actually really love it if you could read the disclaimer and oh your best legal voice. Okay, doing it. This podcast contains general information that is not suitable for everyone. The information contained herein should not be construed as personalized investment advice. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. There is no guarantee that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast will come to pass. Investing in the stock market involves gains and losses and may not be suitable for all investors. Information presented herein is subject to change without notice and should not be considered as a solicitation to buy or sell any security. I know the first thing you notice is that I'm covered in gold. The trip of the wrist, it can turn a hot bitch cold. To get what you want in life, girl, you gotta be bold. No, I'm a direct.